Hi, this is Colin Shaw. Everyone at Beyond Philosophy are really proud that we've been recognised by the Financial Times as one of the best management consultancies in the UK. To celebrate, for a limited time, I'm offering to have a quick call with anybody who has any questions on how they can improve their customer experience. No obligation, just a genuine offer to try to help. Just wait till after the show and I'll give you the URL where you can book a quick call. Thanks very much. Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. I am, to use an English phrase, gobsmacked by the amount of people that don't think about what are we actually going to use this information for. I can tell you that one of the most heartbreaking things for me is when I run an experiment and you realize that there was that one question that you could have asked that would have tied everything up nicely in a bow. Generally, having something that is fast, that can truly tell you what a customer's feeling like rather than them reporting on it, is good news. Colin, as you know, a big part of my job is research. I teach for part of the year, but then I also conduct research in some of the areas that we talk about in this podcast. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about measurement tools and how we're going to get data out of people that I can use to test hypotheses. I know you spend a lot of time thinking about measurement tools. We decided today that we just kind of knock our heads together and talk about different ways of measuring things that we're interested in and some of the the pitfalls and advantages. I can tell you that one of the most heartbreaking things for me is when I run an experiment, I run a survey, and I haven't thought about it enough beforehand and you realize that there was that one question that you could have asked that would have tied everything up nicely in a bow, and now you either need to rerun the survey or you need it. It's just demoralizing. So before we get into the specifics of the tools, I'll go ahead and start off with some advice. Before you do any piece of research, think very carefully about it and think about it from the perspective of how you're going to use it afterwards. But the flip side of this is I've also run experiments and collected data where I got the data back. <laughs> I had no idea what to do with it. <laughs> it was like I had asked too much of things and asked it in the wrong way. And both of those are equally heartbreaking. So you don't want to not get data you could have used, and you don't want to get data back that is useless to you. So, And I think that we should extend this conversation not just to research, but just to general measurement as well. Because, you know, for me, the key is, uh, you know, classic phrase, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And I am, to use an English phrase, gobsmacked by the amount of people that don't actually measure, don't think about what you've just said. You know, what are we actually going to use this information for? And one of the other things that drives me nutty is, and this used to drive me nutty in in a corporate environment, I used to spend hours every bloody month producing monthly reports for people who I'm absolutely convinced no one ever read. 
you know, but you had to do it on time within, you know, by four o'clock on a Thursday because the boss had to then send his one in at, you know, three o'clock on a Friday and, uh, and you know, nothing would happen. So anyway, let me not get on my little hobby horse. No, no. Th- I mean, this is such an important point. There's so much research, you know, when I've gone into organizations and consulted and, you know, you'll, you'll ask them about what research they've done in the past and, you know, gosh, it'd be great if you guys knew this. And almost always the answer is, hey, didn't somebody do that like four years ago? Isn't that in a desk drawer somewhere? So much research just gets paid for and then goes to die in organizations. And part of it is this very issue. Like, what specifically is this research intended to do? A lot of it feels like just kind of background noise that, oh, we'll kind of get a picture of what's going on, maybe a bit, as opposed to, no. What specific hypothesis do we want to test? What specific insight do we want to have? What decision are we trying to make? And, and do your investigations that way. Let me tell you a, a true life story of my good self about 20 years ago now. I was working for my last corporate and i just been promoted to run custom experience. And I went along to this presentation and this person was producing these results about customer satisfaction with some of our key products and services. And I was really taken by the fact that the person presenting was was really presenting it in this nonchalant way and really, you know, was presenting it as if to say, I don't know why I'm bothering presenting this to you. So this was an outside like consultant? Yeah, it was an outside consultant. And I said to this person, I stopped her and I said, look, you know what what's why you what's the problem why you know you're coming across as 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 this is a is a, this is a problem and she said you know what she said this is the third year you've employed us to do this research and every year we come back and tell you the same results and every year you do nothing about it <laughs> <laughs> you know she said why do you bother <laughs> which is kind of hilarious because from her perspective she's getting paid like if if you had done something about it that might alleviate the need and she might be out of work for that job she should be happy about it but it's this the human frustration of wanting your work to matter yeah no absolutely and 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 I, and I sympathize with her and I you know I said to her you're totally right you know and actually when you start to look at it what you realize is it's a cultural issue you know, have you got measurement in place? Tick, yes. Have you got research in place? Yes, tick. Are you doing anything with it? Oh, I didn't know how to do that as well. Yeah. When did somebody put that on the list? <laughs> so anyway, I guess maybe hopefully the learning from all of this is that when you do measurement and research, you really got to think about how exactly, as Ryan said at the beginning, how you're going to use it and where you're going to use it. And if you're not going to use it, and again, I, we say this to a lot of our clients, don't just add new measures to, to old measures. Think about whether you actually want these old measures still. And if you don't, throw them away because they were probably good at the time, but not good moving forward. So what are some of the things that you think people should be measuring? What's the methodology, Ryan, that you would, that you would typically go through? So, I mean, maybe let's start with kind of oldest, lowest tech, and then we can move our way through up to some of the newfangled stuff. So a lot of the research that I do as an academic and a lot of the research that's still done in marketing research circles relies very heavily on 
survey methodology. So asking people to rate stuff on a scale or asking people to select an option. I think I'm more positive towards this method than you are, but I will freely admit to its shortcomings. So the advantages are it's relatively straightforward. Most people can write a decent survey question. And, you know, you, you make sure it's not biased, you make sure it's clear, but it's not that technically sophisticated. There's lots of great, relatively cheap and easy online software that you can use to implement these surveys, SurveyMonkey and Qualtrics or two that I know of off the top of my head. And, you know, there is a, a lot of history in terms of using this methodology. There's been a lot of important stuff discovered. You know, there's reason to have some confidence in at least certain types of questions that are asked in that way. So those are the advantages. Colin, you want to start ticking off some of the disadvantages because there are serious things to consider. I'd absolutely agree with them. I think the disadvantages for me are that you are, by definition, asking somebody about something that has happened. You know, so we are typically would talk to a client and they would say, well, if we're doing research, we're doing measurement of an experience, then, you know, when should we measure it? Okay, well, and again, you know, classically, you'd, uh, the our answer would be, well, there's no point in asking how a customer was feeling about an experience they had with you six months ago, because they're just not going to remember. So ideally, it would be as soon as possible. The problem, therefore, becomes you are still asking somebody about what they remembered in an experience. Now, that doesn't mean to say, for me, it's irrelevant, but it's just a limitation of some of the technology that is out there at the moment. And we do talk about the fact that, you know, the peak end rule and therefore, uh, you know, memories are important and they are important. But getting actionable data becomes part of the challenge. So that for me is the key issue. The other key issue is is just around the segments. And again, we've talked about segmentation a lot. The danger is, again, that people generalize too much and they don't think about the segments. We were talking to a global company the other day and I was chatting to them about different experiences. And, you know, they're based all over the world in a B2B environment. So I've got different types of customers. And the challenge is, is it can become complex. But you, you've got to draw the balance between complexity, i.e. too much information, and too much top-level view. So there's no point in presuming that all customers react exactly the same throughout the world because they don't, because of cultural differences and all the rest of it. It's those two things which I think are, are part of the key issues for me. I will agree with one part of that and then try to strengthen the warning on the other part of it. So surveys are, by definition, backward-looking, almost always. So kind of these retrospective evaluations. And, you know, you, you mentioned briefly that we care about that because we know that memory of an experience is different from the experience itself. And when we talk about the peak end rule, which we've talked about in several podcasts, to be clear, that is a memory bias. That's a consistent way that our memories change an experience when it's encoded. And so we remember it as sometimes different from how we experienced it. Now, that can still be useful. And I think you raised this point in what you're arguing if what you're trying to manage is people's memories of an experience, then you might be able to get some useful data by asking them about the memories of their experience. 
but you have to recognize that you're getting kind of a biased output and plan accordingly. The other part in terms of, of segmentation and sampling, I'm going to take that out of being a, a problem with surveys and say that's a potential problem for all research or maybe not all methods, but many methods. So I'm going to, I'm going to elevate that concern to being more general even than, um, than using survey methods specifically. It's so important. People are different. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the through lines of, of our podcast is just emphasizing that people are different from each other. And if you don't respect those differences, it's going to limit the insights you can get. Totally agree. So surveys is a good workhorse. It's a good fallback, a good thing to, to go to. And there are increasingly sophisticated ways of doing it online, using tablets and phones and lots of great ways of doing it. But it's we've moved beyond that being the only thing we can do. Let's talk briefly about ethnographies, which is something that I've studied and something that I know that you and your firm have done versions of. So ethnographies are also kind of an old method. They grow out of anthropology where these people in the, the khaki vests and the pith hats and they go and live with villagers in the jungle for 10 years and become a part of that culture and, and study it in, in a, by participating in it. That's what ethnography is. And so it's become an increasingly popular method in business to actually observe customers in the situations that they're in and try to gain insights by observing them and sometimes even as by participating as customers. So secret shopper programs are often ethnographic in nature. So the advantages to that are you're getting kind of real-time information by observing people. You are getting kind of an unfiltered view. So you're actually observing what it is. So people, a lot of times when they introspect, when they think back on their own experiences, they get these biases. You as an observer may be bringing your own biases to this, which is potentially a problem, but it's, it's not the same set of biases. So you, you can look at it from a different perspective, from an outside perspective. There are some disadvantages too, but Colin, you want to jump in on advantages or disadvantages to ethnographies? The thing I would say just at this point is, as usual with life, there's never one answer to any of this. So we're we're not building up to the answer. You know, different things could be used at different points. We do a thing we call customer mirrors, which is where we are acting as a customer, okay? And we physically go in and have a have a customer experience on our own behalf. But we also do ethnography where we go and observe customers, okay? The advantage of doing that is you're really seeing what's really happening, and that's the key reason for us doing it, is you can really see what 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 is happening and really with our trained eye, pick out the details of what's happening, see some of the subconscious signals that an organization is giving their customers, or seeing how customers, if you're doing it with a customer, seeing how customers are reacting and looking at their body language and then talking to them afterwards and, and, and finding out why they why they had a, a brief look of surprise on their face when, when something happened. The problem with that is just you can't do loads of them. It's not like you can then go back to the organization and say, well, we've done 3,000 of these and therefore it's statistically valid. So for me, it's a great um, – where we tend to use it is we tend to do that at the beginning – 
and then lead into some more sur- surveys. So we use that as a sort of a, an indication tool, if you like, to go, these are some areas that we may want to look at in more detail in the survey that we're then going to do or the other methodologies that we're then going to do to drill that down and make that live. Because again, it goes back to going, well, how are we going to use this? Because when you are then playing this back to an organization, again, I remember this was um, a uh, large corporate where I had tried to place an order for their product and I had recorded the call that I made. And to be honest with you, you, you just can't be showing them reality. Backing that reality up with, and here's now the stats that tell you that this is a fact, really becomes a powerful argument because you've got the statistics for the left brain people going, you know, uh, do I believe this? And you've got the the story and the actual experience and the actual recording of you phoning into the call center and going, look, this is how it's manifesting itself. You know, is that really what you want to be delivering to your to your customer? And clearly the answer is always no. <laughs> um, because otherwise they wouldn't be employing you to, to go in there and talk talk to them about it. But uh, yeah, I so I think a, that's the challenge. Uh, that, I mean, it's a really great point and one that I would have not thought to bring up, right? So the idea that this can produce a different kind of data and this qualitative data is messy. It's hard to deal with. So I've seen what your organization does with customer mirrors, which again is, is a type of ethnographic method where you develop these spreadsheets so you can try to codify at least some types of the insights. And, and what that does is change the, the qualitative data that you typically get out of an ethnography, which is just observations that you're writing down, and try to kind of quantify it. But you're right, like they're very expensive in terms of time. You get qualitative in- data out of it, which can be hard to aggregate. The advantages are, though, that it can be very persuasive. Um, we've talked about the value of developing personas as a communication tool. I think you're right. And I think that the academic word form is verbatims, where you've got these kind of direct quotes. And those can be extremely powerful. They can just really make certain points clear to managers or to, to people who are implementing this stuff. Where they go, oh, I get it. Like, 43% are experiencing this. All right, that sort of makes sense. Oh, I hear it in that call. Now it makes sense to me. Yeah. No, absolutely. And even in when you're starting to look at some of those verbatim, some of the latest stuff is around uh, text analytics and sentiment analysis. Text analytics has come a long way in a very short amount of time. I recently went to a seminar explaining some of the methods and uh, gosh, it's become relatively easy. The way this generally works is you take a, um, I think the, the technical term is a corpus, like a, a, a body of text. So it could be all of the reviews on your site or all of the tweets that um, kind of mention you or your category. And you take, take all of this body of text and you run it through some software that then tallies how these words are used. And it used to be, like even in the relatively recent past, it used to be fairly kind of blocky and dumb, right? So, you know, a word may be used totally out of context, but it would just know that the word was used. And so if somebody used it sarcastically, it would be tallied in the wrong way. And the software has gotten to the point now where it's it's gotten much better at being able to 
identify, in fact, they, they call the, the programs natural language processing. And so it's they've been able to develop these, these artificial intelligence algorithms that learn what people are intending to, to mean by the words as they use them. And, um, and so you can get these really powerful insights. A lot of the voice of the customer software companies out there, I was actually doing a webinar with um, with one of them the other week, and they were talking about their, and, and a number of organizations have these, sentiment analysis, they call it. So it's not just looking at the text, but it's trying to uncover what the sentiment of that is. And those things are great. I mean, I, I, you know, they're good. It's another form of looking at what's happening. The the good thing again is that we all know that, that that trying to get people to fill out surveys is becoming increasing more of a problem. But the great thing is that you know people are putting loads of stuff on social media, so you've got a lot of text that you can start to use and stuff like that. I think the for me the uh, and maybe we're going a bit too far with this, but what it's still got to mature to is it is understanding the implications then on behavior so understanding a sentiment is is fine but what did the customer do or what do you want the customer to do yeah so if they're feeling this then great that you can identify it and you can say 75% of our customers are feeling that but if I was, you know, for me, the inter- interesting question becomes, well, so what does that mean I need to do? Yeah. And what what does it mean the customer will do as a result of that, i.e. they may phone you back? Quick story. We did some work with uh, an insurance company and they were uh, getting a number of phone calls after you'd they'd uh, a customer had placed a, a policy with them. They were getting a number of phone calls back about f- three or four days afterwards to say to them, "Where's their policy?" Now, um, this was this is literally the the largest auto insurance company in the UK. So this is lots and lots and lots of thousands, millions of customers. And what we discovered was that when we listened to the call. What people were saying, the agent was saying was, you know, you know, thanks very much for, for placing the order. Your policy document should be with you in a few days, okay? And then they were ending the call. And then what we discovered was that three or four days later, people would phone up and say, could you tell me what was happening with that, that policy document? I, you know, what I can't remember what you said. And what we discovered was that, that the agent was using one word, which was should, Okay. And because of that, and these are the, the 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 genuine numbers. There's a video on our website if you want to watch it. Seventy six percent of people were phoning back. Now, bear in mind, largest insurance company in the UK. You're talking about lots and lots of phone calls. We changed one word. We changed should to will. So we changed your policy documents will be with you in five days, and literally within three weeks the number of return calls dropped to 6%. Amazing. Massive cost saving. And that's because of, well, effectively, you know, that sort of text analytics, uh, but a bit of ethnography, a bit of understanding of the the subconscious experience. Because if you turn around to that individual and said, why did you phone back? They wouldn't say because they said should. (laughs) They would have said it, it took too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, ju- I wasn't sure. And yeah, when in fact it, it sounds like the solution was not even improving the speed of policy delivery; it was just setting different expectations. 
So they weren't complaining about the speed. It wasn't the problem wasn't the speed. The problem was the expectations. And it gets back to this text analytics side, like that these words matter. Yes. Yes. And it's not just the words. I guess the point I was getting to was it's then the behavior of the words, if you like, what people do as a result of it, that I think it, it is is the next move on. I think gen- generally in, in the subject, going off subject for a moment, but the general bit about big data is it's not really looking at the stuff that we talk about on these podcasts and, and moving into that realm yet. But that's a subject for a different day. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's the whole, well, I mean, it, it ties into the point that we raised at the beginning, which is what's the goal of what you're doing? You know, the advantages of some of this text analytics stuff is a lot of times the data is already just sitting there waiting to be used. It has the advantage of being real in the sense that it's secondary. It was not generated for the purpose of research. It a lot of times won't have some of the same introspection biases that we'll see in other methods. There are also disadvantages, which, which Collins mentioned. The interpretation is not always straightforward or obvious. You can end up chasing down wild hairs. The sample will tend to be biased. So in general, people are not tweeting about perfectly fine, normal experiences that they have. You're going to tend to sample from the ends. And just the way that human beings work, you're going to get more negative experiences will be tweeted about or talked about than positive experiences because negative experiences make for more interesting stories and they're more persuasive and people find them more interesting. But with all those advantages and disadvantages in mind, it's, it's still another way of getting useful insights. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. now kind of moving into more cutting edge measurement techniques and you know another way of thinking about it is moving into more biological or physiological measurement techniques so i don't know if you want to give a quick overview of some of the the techniques you guys are looking at more recently in terms of authentic emotion measurement yeah and we did a a podcast on this a little while ago um well in fact not so long ago the issue is 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 trying to overcome the issue of of it being real time and trying to overcome the issue of there's sometimes a difference between what customers tell you and what they do or what they feel if if i can jump in real quick when you say real time there are two ways of interpreting that one is are we getting the responses in real time um and the other is are we getting the analysis in real time and i think you're talking mostly about the responses. So it may take you a while to analyze the data, but also as these things are getting more advanced, it, it's increasingly even possible to get even the analysis as it's happening, at least for some of these methods. Yeah, no, absolutely. So one of the so one of the key areas is in the whole area of facial recognition. So facial recognition, as everybody knows, you know, is being used a lot more. If you think of an iPhone 10 and above, you know, passwords are on facial recognition, lots of police security services. Facial recognition is starting being used uh, in a number of places and is here to stay. You know, there's lots of people that talk about the fact that you won't need to remember your password anymore or passwords. You'll just simply use your your face. Your face is your password. So it's taking that on to the next level, which is also then going, 
if you're using the same type of technology, what you can then do is use that to identify how a customer is feeling and how they are feeling in the experience. So going back to that being real time. So now we are overcoming the issue of this is what a customer said that they felt two weeks ago. One problem with that is it's a memory. Second problem with that is it could be what they want you to hear. And the third problem with that, thinking about it, is that it you know you don't necessarily know how you're feeling and at what point you're feeling that because you tend to report at the end of it how you felt overall. That doesn't mean to say that there were high points and low points during that experience. You may turn around and go, yeah, it was a good experience, but you know what? There were actually, if you looked at it in detail, there were three points that were actually low points. So facial recognition, where we're using that now is, is you know, you can use that in stores. You can use that uh, in digital environments. So you can, digital transformation, you can start to identify how the customer is feeling uh, when they are going onto your website and buying something and how they're feeling when they're going and getting a, a, an update because of the facial recognition that's looking at your micro expressions that will be able to say that this person's feeling this at that at that point. The advantage that it gives you, again, is that it basically means that it's there in real time and it's it goes back to the old gamblers you know when the when you see gamblers on tv they're they're wearing sunglasses they're wearing hats they're trying to hide what they call the are the tells in other words you know that bit of surprise when you get a full house or whatever it may be we automatically our muscles move when uh, involuntarily to react to those situations but it's the software can actually pick those things up now and that gives you the ability to be able to to use that as a measure and as research and to therefore design understand what your experience is like and then design a, a better experience does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of disadvantages, a lot of the disadvantages that I would list for this methodology turn out to be outdated. So I would normally in the past have said, it's expensive, it's slow, you need to put somebody in front of a computer monitor so you can monitor their face quickly, which is an artificial environment. All of those restrictions on this method seem to no longer apply. It's getting a lot cheaper to run. It can be run in real environments using kind of existing camera technology, security cameras and cameras on, on computers and phones. And so in terms of cons, the only con would be is if it's inappropriate to answer the questions that you want answered. Yeah, the, there are a couple of other disadvantages in the sense that you do have to make sure if you've the camera is pointed at the person okay there are also privacy concerns and you know you do need to consider those privacy concerns no good to get insights if in the process you completely creep your customers out <laughs> well precisely but you know you you need to think at the end of the day cctv is being run well certainly uh, in a number of places now and therefore you've just got to think about those things as well and think about whether those things are uh, are appropriate but 
generally, you know, and that's what we're talking about here, generally having something that is fast, that is uh, in real time, that can truly tell you what a customer's feeling like rather than them reporting on it is good news. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a powerful method and one that I I have not used and I've not been terribly up to date on. And so I've I've been shocked as I've heard more uh, just how far it's come in such a short period of time. Yeah, and and due to go further over the next few years, particularly as I, I think I mentioned the other day, you know, when when Apple start using it as their main password protection into their their system, then uh, to the phone, and you you know it's going to be taken off. Yeah, I mean it. It's a good point. Like a lot of these, uh, a lot of the technological hurdles is around identifying faces and essentially turning facial characteristics into numbers that computers can read and analyze. And that part's already been done. The additional kind of emotional analysis component of it, as I understand it, is a small add-on relative to that the big hurdles which have already been completed. So it's here, and it's uh, just going to become more common. Yeah, yeah, a bit like the electric car. So in the interest of time, maybe we can skim through kind of the bleeding-edge methods super quickly. I'll throw out a couple, and then I don't know if you have any others to add. Sure. In terms of these physiological responses, again, these this one's been around for a long time, but it's uh, become increasingly easy to use. There's something called a galvanic skin um, reactant, and the idea is it measures uh, how electricity conducts across your skin. It's a measure of arousal, kind of how excited or interested or intense you feel something. That's become cheap and easy to, to append to other methods. Uh, eye tracking has become a lot cheaper and, and easier. You can measure the intensity of people's brain activity using EEGs, which is uh, relatively cheap and easy, or using functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is very expensive, <laughs> but cheaper than it used to be. And can that one gives you information about the specific areas of the brain that are being activated when people are seeing, seeing something. And so that can be used to answer specific types of questions as well. In fact, maybe what we should do is go to our usual question of, well, what does that mean that you should do? You know, what, given all of these ones, what should you do? Yeah. Um, and, and and let me carry on with that thought because I think what, what it shows is there's no one answer here. Yeah. You could take a number of those things. If, if I just took a couple of the things that you just mentioned, eye tracking with skin galvanic response with facial recognition, using those three things together suddenly becomes extremely powerful. So it's not just about one thing and going, that's the answer. It's about putting a suite of things together and looking at what are we trying to research, what are we trying to measure, what's the best method that we can use for it. Last piece of advice I would give would be that playing about with this stuff now is a good thing because ideally you would want to get not just reported what people say that they want, but moving into this area. And and undoubtedly there's a learning curve getting into this area. And the sooner you start doing that, the the, the better. Good advice. I would end by just repeating something that we've we've said here. I get I get frustrated when I hear people just kind of casually dismissing certain methods as being 
outdated or or useless or biased and equally frustrated by people who get just completely enamored of kind of shiny objects. There's nothing wrong with survey methods for certain purposes. The fact that they've been around for forever is some evidence that they're useful or have been useful. It's also not the case, though, that they're the right method for everything. And all of these methods come with both advantages and disadvantages. You know, the idea that I've I've heard of companies, major companies saying, oh, well, we are forever abandoning survey research and we're just going to be looking at brain scans now because that's the true way of getting insights. Sure. Brain scans are great for answering certain types of questions. Surveys also can work. Having a combination of methods and knowing what questions you're trying to ask, I think, is the best way to approach it. Yep, I agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. Okay, thanks everybody for listening today. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you've got any questions, if you've got any suggestions of how we can improve the podcast, if you've got any questions on anything that we've been talking about today or any other day, then please just ping us on contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com. It's always good to listen to or hear from the listeners and and get to find out how we're doing and what you think the show's like and any suggestions. That's another survey method that hopefully works. <laughs> right. Pleading for responses. It's a tried Absolutely. and true. <laughs> Good. All right. Thanks a lot, everyone. Talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Colin. I said I'd be back with you after the show with the URL where you can book a quick call with me. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash meeting. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash meeting. Please remember this is only for a limited time only, so I would recommend that you book as soon as you can. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.